him, like Joseph, uh, in trusting you, Lord, even when things just don't seem right. Lord, we pray that you'll be with Dr. Cox right now as he comes and brings your message. May you open our ears and our hearts to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning. It's good to see you today. Glad you're here as we celebrate Christmas together. I want to share a suggestion with those of you who enjoy reading. If you enjoy reading, I have a suggestion for you that I think will help strengthen your faith and help you to grow as a Christian. I want to encourage you to consider reading Christian biographies. That is the life stories of people who have gone before us and how they have lived out their faith. You see, incarnational truth is often more powerful than propositional truth. Let me explain what I mean by that. Propositional truth is a statement, like God is love. That's a statement. That's propositional truth. The Old Testament tells us that. The Old Testament says God loves us. But incarnational truth is when it's fleshed out, when we see it in the life of a living person. And so in the New Testament, God sent his son and demonstrated his love for us in the incarnation. God became flesh and lived out love by dying on the cross for our sins. So seeing truth in the life of a person is often more powerful. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't done so before, to read Christian biographies on our Facebook page uh, today, on our church Facebook page, uh, and in our newsletter this coming week. I've listed my top 10 Christian biographies, biographies that I have read and that have impacted my life, and I would invite you to share others if you've read a Christian biography uh, that has meant something to you, something that's not on my list. If you um, have never read a Christian biography before, you say, I don't think I've ever read the life story of a, of a great Christian before. I want to suggest somewhere you might start. In our bookstore, we have three books by Eric Metaxas. Seven Men in the Secret of Their Greatness, Seven Women in the Secret of Their Greatness, and Seven More Men in the Secret of Their Greatness. If you read all three of those, you'd read about a 20-page summary of 21 great Christians in their lives, or seven if you read one of those books. And it'll introduce you to Christian biographies. So this month, as we move toward Christmas and these next three Sundays, I'm going to share with you some Christmas biographies. That is the life stories of some of the key characters in the Christmas story, and hopefully we'll be challenged and see truth lived out in their lives. And we begin today with Joseph, the father of Jesus. And I want to share with you the biography of Joseph. Joseph was a Jewish man, uh, a carpenter, who lived in the Galilean village of Nazareth. And when we first meet Joseph in the pages of Scripture, he's pledged to be married to a young woman named Mary. Let me read to you Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now, this was a little bit more than our engagement, this being pledged or betrothed, the King James Version says. It's like our engagement, but it was a little bit stronger than that. Um, it usually lasted a year or so in Jewish families. And when you were betrothed or pledged, um, you didn't live together like yet, like our engagement. Uh, but you were considered husband and wife, and it took a divorce to break it. So in that sense, it's a little bit stronger than our 
time of engagement. So Joseph and Mary are betrothed. They even, their intention has been they're going to be husband and wife. They're called that. It would take a divorce to break it, but they've not yet come together. And it says in verse 18, during this time, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So during the time of their engagement, it soon became obvious that Mary was pregnant. Joseph knew the baby was not his because he knew they had not been together. And so he assumed, naturally, that his wife had been unfaithful. The next verse tells us that Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. He was a just man. And so that meant the only thing to do was divorce her. Um, the Old Testament decreed stoning for an adulteress. That was not practiced. They didn't carry out the Old Testament law to the letter in this time. And Joseph could either have divorced her publicly, which would have cleared his name, a public lawsuit. I am not the father of this child, and she's been unfaithful, and we declare this, and it's an open court. But that would bring great humiliation to her, and he cared about her. So a second option was a private divorce, one or two witnesses, a written statement, and she would be put away. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But, verse 20 says, after he had considered this, or while he was considering this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so this angel gave instructions, Joseph, marry her. You're going to have a boy. Name him Jesus. This is to fulfill the Old Testament promise of a virgin birth. She's a virgin, and yet she'll give birth, and this miraculous birth will testify to the character of her son, the Savior. Now, I want you to notice what Joseph, his response was in verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. I can only imagine how he felt, but the Bible doesn't tell us his feelings. It tells us what he did. I can imagine that he felt, I did not sign up for this. This is not what I signed up for when I got engaged to her. I didn't ask for this. I didn't want this. Some of you might be at a point like that in your marriage where you think, this isn't what I signed up for. I didn't expect this. I didn't want this. The question is, what are you going to do about that? Joseph, it says, did what the angel said. It doesn't tell us what Joseph said. In fact, as we go through this, you look for any quotation of Joseph, you'll never see a word recorded in Scripture of what Joseph said, but it will repeatedly tell you what Joseph did. He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But, verse 25 said, he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, 
and she gave him the name Jesus. While Mary was still pregnant, after they had gotten married, they're married now, while they were, she was still pregnant, in the very last trimester of her pregnancy perhaps, Caesar Augustus decreed that uh, there would be a census and everyone had to go to it, the home of his ancestry to register. Joseph was from Bethlehem. He was a descendant of David, the city of David, but he had, or his family before him perhaps, had immigrated and migrated to Galilee at some time. So he had to go back to Bethlehem. We're not sure if Mary had to go with him or not. Some would say that everybody had to go. Some know only the the man had to go. We're not sure, but he took her with him. He would not leave her at this time in her life. And besides, you can only imagine the whispers in, in Nazareth. They were both probably sort of glad to get away from home under the opinion that would have been going around about them at that time. And so they made what would be about a 90-mile journey if you go around Samaria, which most did, 90 miles walking. Maybe the depictions that we often see of Mary on a donkey are true because at that late stage of her pregnancy, surely there would have been some way she could ride And they arrived in Bethlehem, and there was no lodging available for them. And so the time came for her to to deliver, and somewhere where there were animals, because she laid her newborn baby, cradled him in a manger. Tradition has pointed to a cave in Bethlehem for centuries as that birthplace, a stable perhaps, some kind of place like that, that Jesus was born. Shepherds came. Alerted by God, they came to see this child. And then later, wise men came. They had stopped to ask King Herod where the birth of the king would be. And Herod's officials had told them, well, the Old Testament prophets said it would be in Bethlehem. Micah 5 says that. And so they went to Bethlehem and these strange visitors from the east bowed down before this child and presented gifts to him. But... Herod had told them, come back and see me before you leave. They were warned not to do that. You see, Herod, this is near the end of his life. He died when he was 70 years old. I think this is the last year or two of his life that this is happening, the best chronology we can figure. And Herod was brutal, paranoid, and suspicious. He had killed several wives. He had killed several sons already whom he suspected were plotting against him to take the throne away from him. He was a paranoid, cruel old man. And now they're talking about a new king that is being born. And even though he was old and it makes no sense to be threatened by the birth of this child, Herod determines to have all baby boys in Bethlehem killed. And so, we read the story of Joseph again in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 2. When they, that is the wise men, had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. This is his second dream. And the angel says, get up. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph has a second dream in which God speaks to him and tells him to go to Egypt. Why Egypt? Well, it's outside of Herod's jurisdiction. Herod has no authority there to get them. It is also the closest country outside his jurisdiction. It's also the place where God's people have oftentimes sought refuge and there is a large population of Jews there. And so what 
did Joseph do? The angel said, get up. What do you suppose so far from what you see of Joseph that he did? The angel said, get up. What do you think he did? He got up. Look at verse 14. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night. So Joseph's obedience to God was immediate. In the dream that night, the angel said, get up. And Joseph got up during the night. He didn't wait till morning. Don't you hate it when your kids delay their obedience to you? Don't you hate it when you tell your kids, wash your hands, supper's ready. I, I told you before, wash your hands. I've told you seven times, wash your hands, supper's ready. Well, I didn't know you really was really ready, you know. Don't you hate it when that happens? Do you think maybe God hates it when we delay our obedience and we make excuses? Or we, but Joseph, the angel said, get up. And he got up during the night and he left for Egypt. Now, you, you think your Christmas is a mess. You imagine during the night... You get up and go to a country you've never been before with your wife and a two-year-old, okay? Herod's going to kill all the babies under two, so we don't know how old Jesus is by this point, but Herod's probably got a little safety margin there. He's one, one and a half, whatever. And they're making a hundred-mile journey to a country they've never been in the middle of the night. They're going alone, no caravan, to Egypt. So he got up, verse 14, and took his, the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I've called my son. Hosea 11.1 1 said that. So the Bible said he'd be born in Bethlehem, said he'd be called out of Egypt. So here's another reason that God had him go to Egypt to fulfill that prophecy. And then it tells us in verse 19, after Herod had died, I suspect no more than a year. We don't know for sure. So now maybe they've got a, a three-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph a third time in a dream in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So what do you think Joseph did when the angel the third time in the dream said, get up? What do you think Joseph did? He got up. Look at verse 21. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. I think that they intended to go back to Bethlehem or Jerusalem area to live. I don't think they intended to go back to Galilee uh, not probably where they wanted to go. But the next verse says, verse 22, But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, here's the fourth dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said to the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So Herod, just before he died, changed his will. Most people thought that his son Herod Antipas would rule Judea. That's probably what Joseph expected. He was going to go back to Judea. Antipas was a pretty good guy. But Herod changed his will so that he gave Galilee to his son Herod Antipas. And he gave Judea to his son Archelaus, who was just like him. Cruel, murdering brutal, suspicious, 
And so now this change of plans had made it so that it was not wise for Joseph and Mary to live in Bethlehem. And so for the fourth time, God gave him a dream that warned him and he withdrew to Galilee as God had said and so was fulfilled that he would be a Nazarene. Joseph is a model to us of obedience to the commands of God. Joseph doesn't understand everything, but he obeys. There are times in your life when you wrestle with obedience because you don't, God, I don't know what you're doing in this. I don't understand why I should do this. Joseph obeyed even though it meant great personal sacrifice. Do you know that sometimes obeying God will cause other people to whisper about you? Other times you won't be as popular. You'll have to give up some of your personal rights. Joseph obeyed God even though he must have said, I didn't sign up for this. Joseph obeyed God immediately. I want to invite you to consider your obedience to God. And I invite you to apply this uh, biography of Joseph to your life in two areas of obedience. First of all, would you ask yourself the question, are you obeying the biblical commands of God? Are you obeying God's revealed commands? Um, you see, God has shared with us in the Bible what he wants us to do. Are you obeying God like Joseph did? First thing that God says is repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Have you repented of your sin? Have you been baptized? If not, you're not obeying God. God says live a pure life. Are you living a pure life? He said this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from immorality. Are you obeying God? God says to honor him first above everything. In your worship, in your giving of your money, are you honoring God? Are you obeying the biblical commands of God? And then let me ask you to apply this in a second area. Are you obeying the personal commands of God? You see, the things that we have here, God didn't say to everybody. God didn't tell everybody to marry Mary. He just told Joseph to. He didn't tell everybody to go to Egypt, but he told Joseph to. He didn't tell everybody not to settle in Bethlehem. But he told Joseph to. So these are specific personal commands. So we've got universal commands that he gives to everybody. Are you obeying those? Are you obeying the Ten Commandments? The Bible says don't steal. Are you stealing? The Bible says don't cheat or lie or be jealous. Are you doing that? That's the universal commands. You need to look at your obedience. But then you need to look at your specific or personal obedience. You see, I believe God still speaks to people. I've never had a dream where I thought God was speaking to me. It may just be I'm not as sensitive to God, or it may be that God changes the way I think. If you're a culture that expects God in dreams, he speaks that way. If you're not, he uses other ways. I've never had a, my dreams. I don't think I see God in any of my dreams. I'm stuck running, you know. I, I, I don't have, but, but God, I have heard God speak to me. He still speaks to hearts. He still speaks to consciences. He still speaks to minds. He speaks through the spoken word of preachers that have touched my heart. God speaks through people who speak to you. 
God still has personal commands as he did to Joseph. I believe God still calls people to missions as we heard Andy Norman share his testimony. I pray that God will call you. Some of us will hear God calling us. I believe that God calls us to specific assignments. God may not be telling everybody to witness to that guy down your street, but he may be telling you. God has specific jobs and assignments and directions for our lives. And are you obeying the revealed commands of God and the personal commands of God to your life? Would you think about that in light of the life of Joseph? I want to close by telling you another Christian biography. It comes from the book uh, Seven Great Men that I mentioned earlier. And you can read it other places. It's the story of uh, a young man named Eric Little. Those of you who are old enough may know part of the story from the best picture winner, the picture that won the Academy Award in 1980, Chariots of Fire, but it didn't tell the full story of the life of Eric Little. Eric Little was born in 1902 to missionary parents in China. He and his brother were sent to their native home of Scotland for their education, and so in high school and in college, Eric Little was back home in Scotland, and he and his brother excelled in athletics, and they especially could run, and Eric Little became a sprinter, and he became the fastest in his high school, fastest in his college, and finally the fastest in Scotland, called the Flying Scotsman. He could run the 100-meter dash faster than anyone In his country, in the 1924 Olympics in Paris, were approaching Eric, 22 years old, and he would represent Scotland, who had never had a gold medal winner, and the nation of Great Britain in the 1924 Olympics. But then Eric Little found that the heats, the qualifying races for the 100-meter race, fell on a Sunday, and Eric believed that God would not have him to race on a Sunday. The British Olympic Committee tried to change his mind. He said, you can go to church in the morning. These heats are in the afternoon. But Eric said no. When they couldn't change him, they tried to change with the Olympic Committee, and they went to the International Olympic Committee and tried to get it changed, and they couldn't get it changed. And Eric Little, fastest man in Great Britain, would not run his event, the 100-meter dash. And so he instead said that he would run a race he had never trained for before that year, the 400 meter, a very different race, a longer race, different strategy. And he entered the 400 meter and few gave him any chance to succeed. The American had set a world record in the qualifying heat. Eric drew the worst lane, the outside lane, where you're a staggered start and you cannot see anybody. They're behind you in the first 50 meters or so. You cannot judge the pace of the race. And so in that outside lane, seeing no one, Eric Little began at a sprinter's pace. And those on his team thought, oh no, it's, it's over. No one can sustain a 100-meter pace for 400 meters. Maybe he can get a far enough lead that they can't catch him. But as they rounded the turn, Eric Little didn't, they didn't catch him. He pulled away. He maintained the sprinter's pace throughout the 400 meter and set a new world record and won 
the gold medal in an event that was not his. That morning at the hotel in Paris before he had left, a member of the staff had pressed a note into his hand. He opened it before the race and it said, He who honors me, I will honor. A quote from Samuel. God honors him who honors him. And God honored Eric Little because of his obedience and he won that race. Chariots of Fire doesn't tell you that there were two other races that he could have entered, but they also fell on a Sunday. That next Sunday was the 4x100 and the 4x400, and Eric Little was preaching in a church in Paris that morning rather than running those races that he would have had a good chance of meddling in. And Chariots of Fire does not tell you that that very year, Eric Little quit racing at the height of his career because he felt that God was calling him to be a missionary to China. And so in 1925, one year after he won the Olympic gold medal, at the height of his career, at age 23, he went to China. He stayed in China until World War II. His family, he married there, had children, had sent his family home. He was in a Japanese prison camp. And... Something was physically wrong with him. They did not know what it was. Later determined he had an inoperable brain tumor. And the last words of Eric Little were when he was counseling a teenager in the camp about Christianity. And he was saying, we must surrender. We must surrender. We must surrender. And the last word on his lips was the word surrender to Christ. And at age 43, Eric Little died. And his life is another testimony of obedience to the commands of God, both revealed in the Word and the personal commands that He gives to us. This Christmas season, would you reflect on the life of Joseph? Would you ask yourself, Lord, what are you saying to me? I want to be like Joseph. I want to be obedient to the commands of God because he who honors him, he will honor. Would you pray with me? Oh God, as we search our lives, help us to attain to these role models greater than any human role model that is fallible to that of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, your Son, who was supremely obedient to, to death, even death on a cross. Oh God, as we search our lives today, maybe there are those you're calling to salvation and they've resisted and they've excused. They've never confessed you openly. I pray that today they'll obey you, submit to you, surrender to you. I pray there are those of who we would hear your voice. We would ask the question, God, what are you saying me to do? And that we would know your will is the best for us and we'd be obedient to you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Today, if you want to declare your faith in Jesus Christ, I'll be at the Welcome Center right after our service. It's up this way to my left. Meet me there. We can plan for your baptism. I'll share with you, answer any questions you have, share with you. Maybe you want to join our church. Part of God's command to us is to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Maybe you need to be a part of a church. Today, you can join our church. Just meet me there. Thank you for coming and being here today. Will you stand?